Welcome to Grace Point Church. How y'all doing this morning? Hey, has a much more alive welcome than I got in first service. It was more of a groan, a grunt, something along that lines. I don't know. Uh, anyway, gr- glad to have you with us. It's been a big week in our country, uh, a lot of political shifting around. And don't hoop and holler, don't moan and groan. I don't know what party you're a part of. And whether your guy won, your woman won, your issue won or not, but uh, that's, that's not what we're here about. But the point being is that we had a big week, and uh, we need to, if anything, be praying for our leaders that are leading our nation now more than complaining uh, about it and praying for the next two years uh, of a Democratic president and a Republican Congress and all the, all the dynamics that interplays into that. And, you know, it's great to look back at last Tuesday, but it's also amazing and wonderful to look ahead to this coming Tuesday because if it weren't for this coming Tuesday and what it represents, then there would be no last Tuesday. Uh, and this coming Tuesday is being Veterans Day as we celebrate that as a nation and remembering uh, our, our veterans who have served our nation so well. And so uh, I uh, uh, would like all those who have served our nation at any length of time, would you stand right now as we acknowledge you? Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Give a hand. Thanks for those who serve and are serving our country. That's wonderful. Glad to have them with us. We even have one of our members who's right now, uh, or actually uh, her husband uh, uh, is in Iraq, and so we can pray for one of our own that is not with us today and serving our country as well. But all of this about um, about last Tuesday, this Tuesday, all that kind of stuff is really uh, that politics world that, 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 that some of us live in, some of us don't live in, some of us get tied up in, some of us get all uh, our pennies in a wad over and all that kind of stuff. And so just kind of get past all of that, and we just realize that politics is power. And when you come to that, you know, what party you're part of and what agenda and what pack is supporting you is, is a real big thing about our, our, about our nation. It's a, it's a good thing about our nation in that we get to have a voice in that. And I hope you did vote this past week. But there are a lot of other areas beyond politics that speak to power, that we have power, that we exercise power in. And that's what we want to talk about today, power and pride as an idol. One of those is marriage. There's a lot of power sharing and swapping and and negotiating in marriage. When it comes to sexuality in marriage, that can be power plays in that. When, if, what, all that kind of stuff. And I'll just leave it at that if you're not married. And you, you'll figure that out when you do get married. Uh, but there's, there's power plays in that. Even those who are sadly abused in this area. Uh, I have understood what little I understand about those abusers is it's not so much about the act as it is about the power play in the act. And uh, that's, a, that's a troubling thing about power. Power can take over and cause us to do very harmful things. Religion has power tied to that. Can't talk about all these other areas if we don't talk about religion as having power. Power to manipulate, power to motivate, power to, to stir inside of somebody. At the same time, power to put unnecessary blame and shame on someone, all right, that are not real convictions and not real truth based in Scripture, but just because it's my prejudice. And I even knew of a missionary family that uh, they raised their support and they went around to churches and they knew from this one church that they 
could not ever show their knees in, in a photo on Facebook or anything because if it were to happen, then that church would no longer support them. That was that church's conviction imposing it on the missionaries. Well, the, families, the family went to a beach for a vacation. Well, you don't wear long pants to the beach. And they had their, their kids playing on the beach. And because they had photos online on uh, Facebook with their family at their vacation, they lost that church's support. Again, wielding power, uh, wielding power with money, wielding power with religion, society, teams, work, every school, all of that represents power. Did you make the team? Did you make the cut? Were you picked? Were you the last one picked? If you're playing kickball on the playground, there's power plays. If you made with the first chair or you didn't even make a chair in the band. If you're on student government or you didn't get elected, power. Drama, you made the drama or you didn't make the drama. Power comes into that. Sometimes it's not the power that we have. Sometimes it's the power that we don't have that becomes an idol. Now think about that for a moment. Sometimes we allow the arrogance and the pride of the power and the influence uh, to kind of become an idol to us and then we wield it over somebody. But at the same time, sometimes we're jealous of somebody else's power, somebody else's influence, somebody else's successes. And because of that, it creates an idol and a desire for, again, power in our lives. These are just uh, examples of idols. I can remember in the sixth grade, in the sixth grade, this whole idea of power and placement and pride and influence was, was, was an issue even in the sixth grade. There was a friend of mine who had a, had a birthday party, and invi- parents said he could invite five friends to the birthday party and sleep over birthday party. It was a, it was a big deal. And he talked about it coming up. He said he's going to invite everyone. And then when the parents narrowed it down to five, I was the sixth. I didn't get, I didn't get selected. I wasn't, I wasn't a part of the selected five. Now, the good news is one of the five got sick, and I got to step in. <laughs> Sucks sometimes to get sick, doesn't it? But the reality is is that I got in. That's the most important thing, right, is I had power and influence at that point. I was a part of the, the party. Uh, you know, narcissism has power. Let's call it what it is. Uh, now, what we actually call it is retail therapy. And we're going to be doing a lot of that over the next two, two months. And, but really, instead of calling it and getting all tied up and, uh, are all upset because somebody greets us with happy holidays over Merry Christmas, really what it is, is it should be happy narcissism day because we spend so much and we do so much on so much stuff. It's really not about Christ must or worshiping Christ at Christmas. It's really about the stuff that we get, the stuff that we give, give away. And it's about narcissism in our society, but it has power. Our economy, is based on what's going to happen in the next two months. That's the power that it wields over us. Knowledge has power. We get education based on, if I get a certain level of education, certain number of letters behind my name, then therefore I might qualify for a position at the company or I might be able to teach somewhere. Again, those, those letters mean something. They have dollar values attached to them. The more letters behind your name, the more, the closer and higher you climb up this, this ladder. Knowledge has power. We'll even say, say that the one who has knowledge or whoever has knowledge has power. Position has power. Again, it's not just the position you don't have, it's the position you want to have. You talk to somebody. In fact, I was in, in line voting early one day, uh, a couple of weeks ago. 
And the people in front of me knew each other from somewhere, but they couldn't remember where they knew each other from. And, and so they started asking, okay, well, now where do you work? I work here. And, and okay, oh, uh, who do you report through? And, and all the kind of what they were doing is they were sizing each other up. I could see it. All right. And they were trying to figure out where you fit in the food chain. All right. Uh, what, where do you fit on the scale of, of the chain of command? And isn't it true that when we're a when we're a manager, we want to be a director, and then when we're a director, we want to be a senior director. When we're a senior director, we want to be a VP, and maybe when we be a VP, we want to be an SVP, and then we want to be SVP, we want to be EVP, and then maybe one of these days we'll make it to that ultimate pinnacle of power and be the CEO. We're all about power. We live for power, we work in power, we, we function in power, we raise our kids in power, we tell our kids to become the best on the team because we want them to be in a power position. Power, power, power. It changes our socioeconomic status. It changes where we live and the neighborhood we live in based on power. Richard Foster said this about power. The idolatry of today is the idolatry of power. Now, I, I'm going to speak over the next, this week and the next two weeks to kind of wrap up the series on really looking at the three biggest idols that I see that make up the Western culture. And I, I could say probably these three idols make up even the undeveloped world. These three idols make up civilization. We rise and fall based on these idols. We live for these three idols. Money and possession, sex and pleasure, power and pride really make up. We're going to start at the bottom. We're going to talk about each one of these. Because, and again, I, as I talk about each one of them, realize this, that they're also intertwined. They're married, they're married intricately together. Foster goes on to say this, these issues seem inseparably intertwined. Money manifests itself as power. Sex is used to acquire both money and power. And the power is often called the best aphrodisiac. So the reality is that these are intertwined, mi- mixing and messing together, and however you want to call them, whatever you want to call them, if you want to call them silver, self, sex, fortune, fantasy, fame, possessions, pleasure, power, you can alliterate it any way you want, but it really comes down to these are the things that drive our culture. And these are the things that occupy our minds. And these are the things that consume us. Now, if you have your Bibles, be finding the book of Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at an opportunity, and key word there is opportunity, that Jesus had, the Savior of the world had. Even though he was fully God, he was also fully man. And we're going to see that an opportunity arises in Jesus' life, in the beginning of his ministry, the real launching of his ministry, where an opportunity comes on the scene for him to rise faster in power, to manipulate power, to use power for his own gain, to really make idol out of power. And if the desires of his heart were ever to be vile or wrong, then that would have been a perfect opportunity for those two to come together and create. Because really when you look at temptation, it is when opportunity and desire intersect. And if opportunity is ever there and you don't have the desire, then you could probably blow right past it and not affect you. But if desire is there and opportunity intersects, Katie, bar the door, you're going to probably go headlong into it. 
And Jesus is literally launching his ministry. He's 30 years on the earth. We don't know much about his young adult years, and there's no need to try to recreate that. Some authors in the first, uh, in the 100 and 200 AD tried to rewrite something that happened back in the 300, or back in the 30 AD or 20 AD, and it had no historical validity to it. Not even the New Testament speaks to it. And that's all. Everything we have in the New Testament was written in the first century. So there's no, no basis for it. So we really don't know much about his, his, from about 13, 14 to 30. But at 30, we know what happens there. It's whenever his ministry is launched, it's whenever things really take off. It's, it's at the point of his baptism. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you see the Trinity in a matter of two verses coming together. And, and the Father looks down on the Son at the end of his baptism and he says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And he, he goes off into the wilderness and he's led there by the Spirit. So in a matter of two verses, you see the Trinity working beautifully together. So anybody ever wants to know, where do you find the Trinity in the Bible? You can find it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and then also in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, and Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. You see it right there tied together. But as these two things are happening, as Jesus' baptism and the, the inauguration of his ministry is launching. Now, hear, hear, hear this, hear this. The inauguration of his ministry is launching. Father, Spirit are all present, blessing, sending. He's going into the wilderness. At the same time, Satan moves in. Now, let me just tell, tell you this. The first day after a good day is typically a bad day. That's the way I say it in my life. And the reality is that, listen, as soon as God begins to do something great in your life, get ready, Satan will also countermove that in your life. And that's exactly what happens here in the life of Christ. Where we find Jesus in his temptations, his 40 days in the wilderness, and you find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The four Gospels. We're going to look at Matthew's account. Mark has it. He has it in a very crypt notes form. We're going to read that in just a second. Luke has it. And it's the same details that, that Matthew has. It just has it in a different order. But the point being is that they're all there and they're all agreeing as the Gospels do. Is they kind of, they're kind of like, uh, if you can imagine the Gospels as being this harmony. And I would recommend that's a great book for anybody to read. You can read the Gospels as they, as they kind of flow together. And as you read the Gospels, you'll find that there's four different accounts. And Mark does his, and Matthew does his, and Luke does his, and John does his. And we see them coming together here. Uh, and, and, and here, listen to what Mark says in Mark chapter 1. He says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days. We know that. Being tempted by Satan, we know that. And he was there with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him, Period. Now, if that's all we had, we wouldn't have much, right? What was the temptations like? What did you feel, Jesus? Did you have any emotions? Did you have any physical desires? What was going on inside of you, Jesus? Well, we get that from Matthew and Mark because they kind of come back and say, Hey, Mark, you were real brief. And Mark's is really Peter's account. <clears throat> he said, You were really brief there in typical Mark form. Okay, now let's fill in the blanks. Let's give the whole picture of the rest of the story. And so that's exactly what happens. And so we're going to pick it up with the rest of the story. And what I want to show you today in these three temptations that Jesus dealt with, these are three temptations of power. They're power plays. Some of you all deal with power plays every day in your world. These are three power plays that we can actually end up misusing the power that and influence and pride that God allows us to have. So let's be aware and cautious of them. The very first power play is when we use power for personal 
pleasure. When we use it for our own personal pleasure. I had a pastor tell me when I was 21, he said, Mike, he said, you've got to look out for number one. 21, I'm a young pastor, pastoring my first church. I am gleaning any bit of wisdom I can get anywhere along the way. And this one pastor, very, I was going to call him aged, but that's like cheese. Uh, he, he, was, he was aged. He was experienced. And he tells me, Mike, you've got to look out for number one because nobody else is going to look out for you. And I get that in this world of self-centeredness, and that's part of this whole message is about self-centeredness and how we let it, let it take over. But it even happens in the church world. He said, Mike, the deacons aren't going to take care of you. The trustees aren't going to take care of you. The church members aren't going to take care of you. They're going to stab you in the back. You're going to have staff members are going to fail you. You've got to look out for number one. If you don't look out for number one, then nobody else will. At 21, it didn't set well with me. At 21, I'm still thinking, is that right? Is that really good wisdom? Is that really good counsel? I know we're all still dealing with humanity in the ministry, but is that really the right perspective to have? It didn't sit well with me, and I, and, and I heard other counsel after that. But really, what it, what it is, is it's whenever we live for self, then we do look out for number one. It is about us. Well, here's a situation where Jesus legitimately, physically, could justify looking out for himself and doing a miracle for himself. Let's pick it up in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. And it says this, And after fasting 40 days... Excuse me, after, after being tempted by the devil uh, and after fasting for 40 days, 40 nights, he was hungry. That's a pretty natural response. All right, 40 days of not eating, 40 days of nights, not going to bed hungry. Yeah, as long as I've ever fasted was five days and I could have eaten my arm at the end of that. All right, so the reality is that he was pretty hungry and he had a body and he had a desire and he had physical needs and he was hungry. And what does Satan do? desire, opportunity, he provides an intersection. And he brings it together and he tries to say, okay, you see those stones? Turn them to bread. And can you imagine, because you know when you're hungry, everything looks like a burrito or everything looks like a chicken leg or everything looks like your favorite food and, and you can smell it in thin air. So you can imagine all the stones in this wilderness wondering, you know, okay, okay, that could be a, that could be a big piece of bread. Okay, that could be rye bread or that, that could be this kind of bread. You know, he could just imagine all these stones and he could do it. Now listen, we know later on Jesus is going to take the little crumbs of bread. He's going to take little loaves of bread and feed 5,000. It's not going to be anything for Jesus to take a stone and turn it to bread to free, feed his own hungry body. I mean, again, in a very natural-centered, self-centered world, take care of self. It's all about self. The temptation is, okay, opportunity, desire, or intersecting, let's do this. Satan tempts him. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And, of course, Jesus answers him, quoting from the Old Testament, says, man shall not live by bread alone. I just want to focus on the, the temptation. The temptation, listen, is to provide for self. 36 different miracles Jesus performs in the, in the Old, excuse me, in the New Testament. 36 of them. Not one single miracle did he perform for his own self. 
Not a single one when he was healing and bringing dead people back, when he was healing the blind, when the lady was hemorrhaging for hemorrhaging blood for 12 years, he heals her. Whenever the, when the people were hungry, he feeds them. He never used a single miracle. His life was not about himself. His life was about others. He lived his life for that, and that's how he used his power. Every one of these temptations, I'm going to show you Jesus' power move. So you can jot it down if you want. The power move that Jesus had, power and influence is best used when we serve others and not ourselves. When we make our lives about helping someone else, serving someone else, being a blessing to someone else, taking the power that we have, the rights that we have, the influence that we have, and we turn it around not for self-grandizement, not for self-promotion, but we use it to serve. We use it to give. We use it to help humanity. We take and we influence others. What if our paycheck, think for a moment, just imagine with me for a moment, what if our paycheck was given to us by God so that we could serve others and not serve ourselves. I know we all need something to live on, but do we have to have that much? Is it really that? Does it cost that much to make us happy? To be safe and secure and comfortable? Jesus said that He did not come to be served in Mark 10.45, but He came for the purpose of serving others. But see, what happens is we want power. We can't get enough power. Even Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, a perfect place, and they were perfect themselves, and everything was perfect, 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 and they had all the power of all the world. All right? You can't can't have any more power than it said in Genesis 1.26. He says, you have dominion. You have dominion over the fish and the sea and the birds and the heavens and the livestock and the earth and the creeping and crawling things and the bugs. You can squash a bug if you want to. You have complete dominion. Now, why didn't they squash out snakes all in one swell swoop? I don't know. God has a plan, I'm sure. But the point is that they had dominion. But what happens in chapter 3 just two chapters later? They had the rule of the whole earth. But what happens two chapters later? They're tempted by Satan to take fruit from one tree, only one tree that they had had access to. And Satan says this. He says, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. In fact, what will happen is you're going to become like God. You're going to become like God. See, even when you have all the power of all the world, even when you have dominion over everything, it's still not enough. You still want to be God. And that's the problem with power. It becomes an idol to us, and we want more and more and more and more. I was in college and overheard a conversation. I was not a part of the conversation, just in this room, and this conversation is being played out. There's a business guy, a business student in there with me, getting his uh, business degree and really wanting to become something in life. Alan's a good friend of mine still to this day, and I can remember the conversation all playing out. And Alan asked the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, It was just kind of open mic time. He said, now you have been with your company all of your career, virtually. And you started pretty low and you climbed your way up through the company. Hello. And as you climbed up through the company, would you mind telling me, what is it that was your success? How were you able to do that? He said this. I still remember it to this day. He said, I did everything I could to make my boss look good. That's it. I did everything I could to make my boss look good. 
Now, we may call that brown nosing today, but basically what he was saying is, listen, if my boss wanted something, I wanted to give it to him at the very best level and the highest level that he could and so that he could impress his boss. And you know what? Every time my boss got promoted, guess what? I got promoted right behind him. And every time he got another bump up, I got another bump up. Every time he got a good evaluation, I got a good evaluation because everything I did, I lived to make him look good. What if we lived our life to make our CEO look good? our supervisor, our boss? What if we just lived our life to make Jesus look good? At the end of our life, he would bless us because we were faithful to him being in power. Number two, the second temptation is to use the power to increase popularity, to increase position, and to increase your pride. Now, I know that we struggle with popularity and pride and what is power and, and how all that fits in. In fact, we, we struggle with it because we have a problem with popularity because we think that that's power. It turns out Paris Hilton's and Miley Cyrus kinds, okay? That's what happens with when we equate power with popularity. Money sometimes gives people a sense of power that if I have Money, then I will be powerful people. And you can certainly shape the world. I mean, look what Facebook has done. You can have a lot of power and influence, if you will. But is that all there is? Is charisma. Is charisma a motivational speaker. You can be a president. You can sway the crowds and uh, people. Is that really what power is? When you look at the life of Christ, he had an opportunity to woo and wow the people in this moment. As he's launching his ministry, it makes sense. It makes sense. Satan takes him to another place. All right? Now, notice if you go down to verse 5. He says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him at the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to them, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He that commanded the angels are concerning you, and over your hands uh, he will bear you up unless you strike your foot against the stone. Now what Satan does is he begins to quote Scripture to Jesus. He says, listen, we're going to go to the busiest town, the capital city, to the busiest part of the busiest town, the town square, and we're going to get at the temple, and we're going to let you throw yourself off. And if you will do this, I'll tell you what, you will launch large. Your ministry will be big. There will be angels who will swoop down. People will be wooed and wild. There will be like a firework of heaven as people watch you. It will be the most amazing thing as they watch you do this and you will have a lot of people. Let's go do that together. That's the temptation. See, that's really a temptation of shortcuts. It's really a temptation to woo and to wow. And is that really how Jesus called his disciples? No. He found an evil, corrupt tax collector named Matthew. He said, won't you come follow me? He told Andrew and Peter, hey, won't you come and see? They were just fishermen. He went one by one, two by two, and he got them one by one, two by two, three by three, and he made them his disciples. And it wasn't about wooing and wowing the crowds. It wasn't about shortcuts. It wasn't about fast tracks. It was about... Winning the hearts and the lives of people. See, shortcuts and popularity become little idols that crumble in our lives. Bob Jones says it's never right to do wrong to do right. Jesus, if he would have thrown himself off, even though he was launching his ministry, even though the angels would have swooped down, even though all the fireworks of heaven would have gone off, and even though, even though, even though, here's the reality, that wasn't how God intended it to be. He wanted to reach him one person at a time. Just like he came to some of y'all and knocked on your heart's door, 
He didn't woo and wow you. He called you as a father calls a son. And don't you love that intimate drawing of our father? That's the way he grows his ministry. See, the reality is that pride is the number one character killer. Pride is the number one character killer. Your gifts, see, Jesus had great gifts and powers and all that. Your gifts can take you where your character can't keep you. You may woo and wow the crowds in, 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 at a distance. You can impress people at a distance, but you impact people up close. You change lives up close. That's how Jesus does ministry. Not the wooing and the wowing, not the whining and the dining, not the how, how can I sway you that way, but by winning them one at a time. You know these names, Bernie Madoff, Jeffrey Schilling, Bernie Ebers. These are the names of great bankers and business guys who climbed up really high and were really successful, but something come in, came in and began to corrupt away their character. I'm not saying any of them started off wrong or bad, but they ended up where they ended up. Madoff has ended up going to spend the next 150 years of his life behind bars after a $65 billion Ponzi scheme. And really when you break it down in an interview that was done in his own words... He described how the Ponzi scheme took off. It wasn't his intent from the beginning. It was just merely a bad year of investments. And instead of invest, instead of disclosing to his investors that it was not a good year, he found it more prideful and arrogant to cover it up and try to recover in the years ahead, showing an erosion of character based on his pride. He said in his own words, I did not want to admit his failures as money as a money manager. He did not want to admit his failures as a money manager. Here's what power and influence. Here's Jesus' principle. Power and influence are best gained through proven character. Over time, character. Over time, character. Peter said this in 1 Peter 5. He said this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and in the proper time he may exalt you. Don't focus so much on your career and power and influence and I'll focus on your character and let your character promote you. Let your ear, your, your character that cannot be reputed be what promotes you. John Wooden, undoubtedly the best basketball coach of all times said to his said of his players be more concerned with your character than with your reputation because your character is what you really are while your reputation is merely what others think you are do you are you more concerned about your appearance on facebook and your resume than you are about your heart and your character the third temptation of jesus was to use power, to use his power on misplaced priorities. Are you a person of principle and values and purpose and mission? Are you a purpose, are you, you a person who can be bought? Now, the first two temptations that Jesus had, it was to misuse his power. Throw yourself down, the angels will swoop down and pick you up, create this big fanfare, people will start following you, it'll be a real quick, easy shortcut to the top. 
Or you can turn that stone into bread. You can feed your, your hungry belly. You can serve yourself. That's really what you could do with your power. But is it really about serving yourself? No, it's not about serving yourself. It's about serving others. That's why God gives us power and influence. The next one, though, the last one, he takes him on top of a mountain. And he shows him all the kingdoms. Now, what mountain it is, I don't know, but it was a mountain enough that he was able to show him maybe Egypt, maybe, maybe modern-day uh, Jordan. He was showing him all these lands. He says, again, the devil took him to the high hill uh, mountain and, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, all these I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, the number one rule about making a deal with the devil is you're going to get ripped off every time. You will never get the bill of goods you buy, okay? But number two, if you make a deal with the devil, you will very likely be selling short your values, principles, purpose, and mission that God has for you. You will settle for a little kingdom here on earth Kingdoms of the world. You'll settle for a little somewhere in a little corner office and a little something out there. You'll settle for something little out there that'll be a little aspiration. But you will sell out your character. You'll sell out your values. You'll sell out really who you are and really what you value. And here's an opportunity when Jesus is launching his ministry. And the number one thing that Jesus talks about throughout his entire preaching, teaching time was the kingdom of God. So this is an opportunity for him to advance the kingdom of God to all these kingdoms, right? Except when you go on and you read at the crucifixion, John 18, 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being headed, uh, <coughs> excuse me, handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. He says it twice. My kingdom is not of this world. Here's the power principle of Jesus. He says, don't allow the greed and the power and influence to trump your God-given values and principles and mission and purpose. I can tell you about myself. When I first came into ministry and that pastor's telling me at 21, Mike, you need to look out for number one. There's a little bit of that seed that sunk into my heart. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because at 21, I began to to do something, and I began to have a desire for something. I wanted to grow in ministry. I wanted to have a big church. I wanted to have television cameras, and, and I wanted to have what the other churches had down the street at the, in the county seat towns in the capital cities. And I knew I was going to have to climb my way up, but I did everything I could to position myself in that, 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 that line of thought. It was not some kind of... I'll, Stab somebody in the back, but I just wanted to make sure that I was noticed. There was a, there was an arrogance about me, a pride about me that I wanted to be the pastor of that next big church. And so I pastored this church and then I pastored another church and I interned at this church and I got my name and I got these guys on my resumes and I started building this nice little resume. And then I got to this one church and things really started growing up. We were 10 years, the church was flat and we started growing and we went into multiple services and it was beautiful and powerful. And all along, I'm, I'm building my resume. I'm building my resume. I literally had a working document constantly on my computer. And anytime I got a certificate and anytime I, I got recognized and anytime I got an award, I would go into my little Word document and I'd type it in there. Another little star in my crown, another little accomplishment in my belt, another little bullet point on my resume. And I was just building myself up, building myself up, building myself up. And then God said, hey, by the way, I want you to go to Africa. <laughs> Africa. 
okay, that's a good thing because I can put that on my resume and it'll really look good because now I'm a global Christian and now I really press people. And so our family packs up, moves off to Africa for four years. We thought we were going for the rest of our life and we were going to really make a big difference and it was going to really give us a lot of recognition. And I can tell you this, when you announce to your family and you announce to your churches that you're moving to Africa, you get a lot of recognition. And I I started getting invitations to speak in a lot larger churches, my pride just being stroked and stroked and stroked. Then I get over to Africa. And the people, the missionaries that greeted us when we got off the plane couldn't have been any colder than anybody I ever met before in my life. And they had read my resume. (laughs) And they were not impressed. And then I, I, I go out with my little African friends out underneath an acacia tree, and I sit there underneath an acacia tree. And, 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 and I wanted them to realize that they're with somebody some, of something, okay? I'm somebody special, and they're special to be with me. And it was this kind of, and I'm not saying this, but I'm feeling it. And I'm wanting them to recognize me. And if I'd given them a copy of my resume, about half of them would have only been able to read it. The other half would have used it for toilet paper or to start a fire. It really wasn't that valuable over there. And it certainly wasn't that impressive. And I tell you what, right now, here and now, I would not trade those four years in Africa for any other years of my life because God had to tear me down so that He could bring us back here to start a church with nobody, just four families, and here we are today. Now, it's not about this, I promise you, because I'll tell you this, if I'm lying, I'm dying. I would leave all this today and move back to that acacia tree in southern Zambia any day of the week because it's not about this. It's about a bigger kingdom. It's not about my kingdom. It's about a bigger kingdom. And you know the thing, the, the strange thing is in this whole world, there's a lot of people who grow some really nice big personal kingdoms and have some really good successes and I'm not dogging them, man. God's gifted them and granted them and blessed them. It's a beautiful thing. But you know what? It's an amazing thing happens when I talk to people and how at the end of building this successful empire, building this dynasty, they walk away from it and they go, really, is this what it's all about? And I don't know when it happens. Sometimes it's 40, sometimes it's 45, sometimes it's 50. But they reach a point and they go, man, I've been doing this for a long time. And is this really what it's all about? Now, I know last week, if you're a Broncos fan in the house, you got schooled uh, by the Patriots, and I'm sorry about that. But, uh, but uh, Tom Brady did an interview a few, few years ago on 60 Minutes. And when I heard that for the very first time, I thought that is the most amazing confession of the soul that I think I've ever heard on national television. And whether you like Tom Brady, you like the Patriots, you got to admire a man who has three Super Bowl rings, who signed a contract a few years ago for, I think, some $48 million. And, I mean, he only dated supermodel stars, you know, people perfect in every shape and form, until finally he married a supermodel star. You know, the guy just, I mean, he's a dynasty unto himself. And yet, I want you to listen to a 30-second clip of the 60 Minutes interview with him. And I want you to hear his heart. And even though great success and accomplishment and great power and influence and great reasons to be prideful and arrogant, I want you to hear the emptiness and the unanswered questions. Listen to this. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, 
Maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football, and I love being the quarterback for this team. And But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. A lot of other things about me I'm trying to find. And what's more than the fourth Super Bowl ring, the fifth Super Bowl ring? The reality is, is you can be the most powerful person in this room right here, right now, and be an empty shell. You can be building your house of cards, and it could be the most beautiful house of cards in the world, and it'd be an empty shell. And one good gust of wind, one bad health report, one pink slip from the from the boss when you get into the office tomorrow and it's a game changer power it's a horrible idol it's a horrible master would you pray with me Father I thank you for the influence that you give us for the grace for the power that you allow some of us to have whether we're playing on a sports team We're teaching our children. But dear God, don't let us abuse the powers, the influence, the positions that you give us in life. And we may we hold them delicately so that after we get our Super Bowl rings and after we get that perfect marriage of that perfect model person and after we get that perfect contract of that perfect lifetime deal that will not be saying on national television what's it all about but may we see that it's about you Jesus it's about the life I can live for you it's about not the kingdoms of this world but the kingdom of God and may we live for that kingdom Lord and even die for that kingdom Oh, we love you, and we thank you for this moment together. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?